coming to you direct from the heart of New York City all the way to wherever you are, you're listening to the VIP Jazzwall Report. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen. There's a new book out in town that's causing quite a stir. It's called Clinton Cash and gives a very revealing insight into how the Clintons made money and the stories behind their fortune. It claims to uncover how and why foreign governments and businesses helped make Bill and Hillary rich. And on the show today is the author of this book, Peter Schweitzer. Welcome to the show, Peter. Hey, thanks so much for having me, Vip. I appreciate it. Well, I read the book last week and I actually loved it. It's an easy read. It makes you want to read it all in one sitting. It reads like a great piece of fiction. But what troubles me is, Peter, that it's anything but fiction. Yeah, I mean, this is uh, this is a story uh, uh, about the Clintons, about money, about uh, very important decisions on national security, whether it relates to uranium or human rights. Mm. And um, it includes a, uh, a cast of characters, as it were, that... Uh, Entails not just Bill and Hillary Clinton, but the people around them, and and uh, I think some very troubling oligarchs around the world. But why should your book matter to every American out there? Well, I think the question uh, is, you know, why are our leaders making the decisions they make? Uh, and we all are very familiar with the story of, you know, follow the money in American politics. Uh, there's been a lot of debate about the role of money in politics, what we should do about it. There really hasn't been a lot of debate because there's a big consensus that we don't want foreign businesses or foreign governments influencing our political process. They can't contribute to political campaigns. They can't give money to political action committees. What I argue in the book is that, that they have found a way around that through the Clinton Foundation and through highly inflated speaking fees to Bill Clinton. And so people should be concerned about it because the decisions that were being made as Secretary of State by Hillary Clinton, and I think decisions going forward in the future, are directly intertwined with the flow of funds from foreign entities that um, you know are interested in their own interests, not those of the United States, and uh, that fundamentally it's going to influence the, the, the course of the country. Is the publishing of the book coincidental or incidental to the emergence of Hillary as a front-runner of the presidency? Uh, that's a great question. Um, you know, the research on this began January of last year, so mm. it's something I've been looking into for a while. Um, obviously, at that time, there were thoughts that she may or may not run for president, so right. we didn't know, but I felt it was important because what you have is, in a sense, a new model that is being established. And my belief is that uh, if we don't deal with um, the problems that arise from the kind of arrangements the Clintons have, you're going to see it imitated by people from both political parties. Uh, you know, it's a mastermind, D- isn't it? Yes, it's exactly. brilliant. Yes, it's it's a fabulous way of doing it. You you set up a family foundation that does some good things. I'm not saying it doesn't do some good things, but you can take large sums of money to that foundation, and you can also take inflated speaking fees that is money ended up in your pocket, and it's a way essentially around ethical requirements and reporting that, that apply in most other cases. You know, critics might say to you that, do you really have it in for the Clintons? Are you a Hillary hater or are you just a protective patriot of our ethics and morals? 
Uh, well, that's a fair question. Um, you know, I'm I'm politically conservative. Uh, there's no question about that. But I I always tell people not to confuse that uh, with uh, being Republican because mm. I have in my uh, research two previous books I've I've dinged Republicans on ethics issues and we also actually did a report uh, at the Government Accountability Institute on uh, the uh, security or lack of security that federal campaigns in the United States have to uh, preventing foreign money from being donated to campaigns. And in that report, we actually praised the 2008 Hillary Clinton campaign because they had tight security measures. So um, I am certainly politically conservative, but I think in the broader context of what I do, uh, this fits very, very well in, in my approach of following the money and trying to root out corruption. So you're not really attacking the Democrats. What you're really doing is attacking ethics and morals. Uh, yes, exactly. Um, I wrote a book a couple of years ago called Throw Them All Out, which looked at insider trading on the stock market by politicians. Uh, some of the cases, a lot of the cases I highlighted involved Republicans. Uh, they were not happy about that. I wrote a book uh, a couple of years ago called Extortion, which looked at the extortive fundraising practices of uh, politicians on both sides of the aisle. The uh, Republican Speaker of the House, John Boehner, was not particularly happy about that. Uh, now I guess you could add the Clintons to the list of those who are not happy with my work. But, now, when uh, you were, I'm, a, I'm an equal opportunity offender. <laughs> and when, when you were writing this book, did you approach the Clinton's office for help? Uh, we did. Contacted mm. them, contacted um, uh, numerous uh, other individuals mentioned in this book, uh, right. Frank Justra, the Canadian investor, etc. Uh, and, and none of them really were interested in talking. Um, and that's really one of the reasons that I shared the book before publication with the investigative units at the New York Times, Washington Post, and ABC News, because I thought they would have more success in that area. It's harder to ignore the New York Times than it is to ignore uh, an author. But did you send a copy to Bill and Hillary? Uh, I did not. No. I did not send them an early copy. Um, I figured, you know, hey, I'm an author, so every book that somebody has to buy as opposed to getting from me uh, is, is helpful. But in all seriousness, no. I, I, I wanted to give them an opportunity to respond to certain things. Uh, they were not interested, which is certainly their right, uh, but I felt no obligation to uh, give them an early look at the book. Did you ever feel that in your research or your pursuit for information or evidence, were you ever trying to be stopped? Um, I, we didn't really run into opposition um, because I think the research approach that we took was so low-key. Mm. Um, and and the trail was so diverse. I mean, I, you know, we literally, in, in researching this project, and I had a wonderful research team, uh, we looked at everything from Ukrainian shipping records to Canadian tax records. So a lot of it was just accessing documents and material, looking at the timing of transactions. Um, there are no anonymous sources in the book. So a lot of it was making use of public information and finding things. So, for example, we found in Canadian tax records these donations that were supposed to be disclosed, but the Clintons never disclosed. Um, and so because we used that methodology, there really wasn't an opportunity for anybody to gauge exactly what we were doing. I've been watching a lot of your interviews over the uh, last few days and few weeks. Uh, in your interviews, the hosts, they're almost scared to say that the Clintons seem to indulge in some sort of a questionable flow of funds. Um, and to a point where they're almost defending Hillary by saying that you don't have specific evidence. They haven't committed a criminal crime. Everything is more of a coincidence. But 
you know, in, in my world, um, and they keep saying it's a coincidence, the, when you have more than one coincidence, the repetition of it becomes the evidence. Yes. Uh, no, I think I, that that's very, very well put. And I think it's true. And what's happened is, uh, you know, the Clinton campaign has created this ridiculous standard that, that I, as an author, am supposed to produce the so-called smoking gun. Right. Um, and if I don't produce the smoking gun, nothing happens. Um, the problem is that if you look at some of the recent cases where people have been prosecuted for political corruption, uh, there's no smoking gun in any of those cases, whether it's the, you know, the former governor of Virginia, Senator Menendez in New Jersey, or the governor out in Oregon who resigned. There was no smoking gun in those cases. And, and the fact pattern and the repetitive nature of transactions with the Clintons is far more extensive and developed uh, than it was in any of those three cases. So to me, the question is not a smoking gun. The question is, the ethics standard that we are applying to all those public officials, which I think is a good standard, mm -hmm. does that same standard apply to the Clintons, or do they get to operate on their own standard? And if they do, I think that's very troubling for um, the future of ethics in this country. Well, what I find troubling is that, you know, with, with the Clintons, they don't admit their mistakes. Hillary does not accept Benghazi was a ter terrible mistake. Uh, the whole issue of using her personal emails was another issue that she was very dismissive about. Um, this, they're like the Teflon couple. <laughs> well, I think that's right. I think the question becomes, however, um, you know, when you look at the poll numbers that show, uh, you know, even independents, not, not Republicans, but independents, uh, well more than, than 50%, I think it's 65 or 70%, mm. don't, think she's, don't think she's honest. Um, I think that's troubling. I mean, call me old-fashioned, but I think that when people look at their political leaders, they want some sense that there is a, an effort to be honest. I'm not saying that, that you know, politicians don't spin and they don't necessarily shade things to look their way, but I think, as you put it well, politicians need to be willing to accept their mistakes, uh, and they need to be willing to acknowledge if something that they've done is wrong, because I think people are forgiving. With the Clintons, you don't get that. You get this uh, complete iron wall, and I think that, you know, this is the tactic they used in the 90s when they were in the White House before. I think with the Internet, I think with the flow of information, with all the news sources out there, I just don't think that approach is going to work anymore. In some way, shape, or form, do you think your book has hurt Hillary? Because in the last 30 days, I think she's only spoken with the press eight times. Uh, yeah, it's, it's hard for me to know. Um, you know, people ask me about, you know, how will this affect 2016? And honestly, I mean, that's, that's not really my goal. My goal is to reveal the information. What people decide to do with it is theirs. Mm. I do think that, that the fact that she uh, has not been talking to the media at this point in time is both troubling and I think is directly related to the book. She doesn't want to answer some very simple, basic questions. And you know, my concern is that if you are going to be the commander-in-chief, you're going to deal with Vladimir Putin, you're going to deal with sensitive issues, you ought to be able to answer some basic questions from the press. I've been having trouble trying to figure out, in, from your book, how to classify these acts of donation in exchange for facilitation, so to speak. You know, you donate to her and then she facilitates for you. Right. Um, yeah, and in some of your shows, you know, your hosts have said, well, it's not a crime. Okay, it's not a crime. 
Um, it's possibly not a scandal as yet. So what is it? What, what, what do you think it is? Is it a unique form of corruption? Uh, I think it is. I think it is corruption, and I do think that it warrants, uh, you know, criminal investigation by the FBI. I mean, if you look at the case in Virginia, for example, with Governor McDonnell, mm. and by the way, I supported the, the prosecution. There are some people who did not. I think it was justified. In that particular case, the prosecutors said all they needed to show was that his family received some benefit, which they did, and receiving that benefit was not illegal under Virginia law. They received some financial benefit from from an individual, mm. and that the governor provided tacit, in their words, tacit approval of actions that benefited that individual. And that's the reason that he was prosecuted. So the notion that no crime was committed here, I'm not sure we can say that. I think, you know, the question becomes, is there uh, any other evidence that might exist if you subpoena somebody, if you got access to, uh, you know, visitation records, emails, telephone conversations, etc. Um, what other evidence is there? But I would not be prepared to say that there had been no criminal act here. Uh, you see the same thing with Senator Menendez in New Jersey. There's no evidence of a quid pro quo, but you see the same pattern. Pattern. Uh, funds flow to him, benefits were done on his behalf, and he is facing federal prosecution for that right now. So what do you hope your book will achieve? Do you want subpoenas to go out? Do you want access to the documents? Do you want the government to take action? Uh, I want uh, a couple of things. I want um, there to be serious criminal investigation of this uh, because I think it rises to that level. But who I has the power to do that? Well, that would be, of course, the FBI director, okay. uh, who has who has some independence uh, to do that. Uh, works at the Department of Justice, but you know has a ten-year appointment, so has the independence to do it. You have uh, congressional committees that can issue subpoenas, mm. uh, and you could have, you know, a, it would have to be a very courageous prosecutor, but you'd have you could have a prosecutor convene a grand jury on this potentially. Um, but I think that needs to be done. I think the second thing is we need to have a conversation in this country about whether this sort of behavior, these sorts of transactions, if we're okay with them. Because honestly, if this is allowed, there is no reason why you could not have a Secretary of Defense four years from now, whoever is in the, in the White House, have a Secretary of Defense set up a, fiber, a private family foundation and have their uh, maybe prominent spouse hit the lecture circuit and get inflated speaking fees from entities overseas. I mean, why not? Um, I think in that context, people might say, well, I would have a problem. That returns me to the point of then, then we need to deal with this now, because this will be imitated if it's not dealt with. Yeah, and, and you know what? Um, moving it forward, there's a huge coincidence that, you know, the large donors to the Clintons come from developing nations. And actually... Some of his closest allies on U.S. soil are also immigrants from these developing nations. Um, there's this gentleman, Sant Chatwal, and yeah. his son, Vikram Chatwal. Now, they're not known as widely across America, but they're very well known in New York. Right. Um, Sant got arrested for soliciting campaign contributions illegally. Um, yeah. And I think it was on behalf of Hillary. Um, That's correct. He's very close to Bill and Hillary. Now, to the best of my knowledge, um, Sant could have been facing, I don't know, 10, 15 years in jail maybe. Um, yeah. But amazingly, 
he got off. He's got like, I think, over 100 IRS tax cases against him. Uh, But the Brooklyn federal judge was convinced not to give him a jail sentence because he got 200 letters from Chutwal's employees and wealthy friends. And it'll be interesting to see if we can get access to those letters and see how many of them are very close associates of the Clintons. I, I think that's exactly right. And and that, that's really a particularly interesting case because right. he was not only charged with um, making illegal campaign contributions, but also the charges included obstruction of justice. Uh, that he tr- he went to employees. He essentially was having people make straw donations right. that he reimbursed. Uh, and then he went when the FBI started investigating this. He went to employees and told them to lie to the FBI. Right. So now you've got obstruction of justice on top of that. And yes, it it is quite stunning uh, that uh, that there's that there was no uh, jail time for that. Um, I mean, how do you it, manage that in 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 one of the world's topmost countries where, you know, the justice system is everything. Yes, and, and this, I think, is the, is the problem. And part of the problem with the corrosive power that you get with these sorts of um, transactions uh, with the Clintons, they operate with individuals that, that um, you know, may be uh, involved with or may have a proclivity to um, financial transactions done in this way. I mean, one of the individuals who figures into that story with Sant Chatwal is an Indian politician named Amar Singh. Oh, yeah. Um, They have very, very sort of colorful, uh, let's say, figure who, among other things, has gotten into fistfights in the Indian parliament. He has been uh, charged with uh, bribery and and all sorts of scandals. Well, so here's an individual that has a past in Mm -hmm. this area, operating in this sphere, uh, and yet you know, is is uh, allegedly a, a donor to the Clinton Foundation of between $1 million and $5 million. But when you ask Amar Singh if that's his money, he says, no, it wasn't actually my money. It was somebody else's money. But they won't really tell you whose money it was. So it's an and international Clinton, straw donor, so to speak. Yeah, it, exactly. And and so it, it's, you know, and, and yet, as far as the Clinton Foundation is concerned, there doesn't seem to be a real desire to kind of get to the bottom of this and say, you know, for just for the sake of looking good and for the sake of public appearances, we need to vet this and find out where these funds came from. We need to look at Amar Singh's past and, and maybe have some red flags there. There is no red flags. There's a, there's a full embrace. And you can go to the continent of Africa and to South America, and you find similar sorts of relationships mm-hmm. uh, with individuals with, uh, with similar pasts. And so it then becomes, to me, a sort of um, political culture question. What is the culture of the Clinton Foundation? Who are the people they're interacting with? Um, and what, uh, what is their, their sort of ethos? Uh, and the ethos is individuals that have histories that are very sketchy when it comes to these kinds of transactions. And why then do we expect them, when it comes to the Clintons and the Clinton Foundation, that it's going to be all squeaky clean? To me, that's just an unrealistic and ridiculous assumption to make. And the thing is, uh, each one of the characters you mentioned in your book it doesn't take a lot of research or knowledge to figure out that they all have a significant past. Um, you know, I mean, like, if you, you just have to type in something, put in IRS tax cases, and then about 100, over 100 come up. Uh, yeah, he's defaulted exactly. on bank loans, this and that. Um, Sant's son, Vikram, this yeah. guy was arrested last year on a felony drug 
trafficking case, carrying cocaine in his underpants. And I believe he had some sort of medication. And I think one newspaper said he even had horse tranquilizer. Yes. Uh, You could be put in a Florida prison for 20 years. Yes, exactly. He goes scot-free. Yes. Same guy, same guy whose wedding was attended by Bill and Hillary Clinton. Yes, exactly. That's exactly right. So, you know, the the question becomes, Hmm. when you look at these individuals, uh, you know, like you said, you can type in, you know, one of the names somebody could type in, and and we talk about in the book, is Gilbert Chigori, uh, who is uh, of Lebanese descent but was born and raised in Nigeria, uh, who has a past that I would say is even worse uh, than than St. Chotwalls. I mean, here's an individual who uh, was business partners in Nigeria with Mark Rich. Mm -hmm. Uh, Mark Rich, of course, the... Oh, I was dying to get to that. Go ahead. <laughs> you know, who was uh, uh, let out, uh, uh, basically, of his legal obligations. He was pardoned by Bill Clinton on his last day in office. And this is Mark the guy. Clinton. He was a billionaire. I think he owed $48 million in taxes. He, he yeah. dealt with Fidel Castro, Gaddafi, Ayatollah Khomeini. I think he had a charge of, what, 325 years in prison? Yes. He was on the FBI's 10 most wanted list. Right. And he was, he was pardoned by Bill Clinton. Mm. He received, Clinton received universal scorn. Even James Carville, his political aide, said it was a dumb move. Uh, So everybody recognized that this was a stupid idea. Well, what does Bill Clinton do? He strikes up a, a friendship and a relationship with Mark Rich's business partner. Gilbert Chigori. And so who is Gilbert Chigori? Well, he's donated to the Clinton Foundation. He's pledged a billion dollars at the Clinton Global Initiative. He sponsored speeches for Bill. He went to Bill's 60th birthday party, you know, very difficult invitation to get. Um, the problem is, is that in addition to being Mark Rich's business partner, Gilbert Chigori was convicted in Geneva, Switzerland, or in Switzerland, I should say, mm. um, on, on international charges of aiding and abetting a criminal enterprise and money laundering. And what he did was he helped the dictator of Nigeria, Abache, smuggle billions of dollars of government money out of the country and put them in bank accounts in Europe. So this is somebody that Bill Clinton is embracing, is spending time with, um, invites him to his birthday parties, and there's no sense of, you know, perhaps this is not the sort of impropriety that, uh, uh, that you know, we need to stay away from. There's a full embrace, which to me is just shocking. Well, again, the pattern of behavior is reflected in the pattern of individuals. Sun Chatwal, Vikram Chatwal, Mark Rich, Amar Singh. And then yeah. to have, when you go on the shows... To have the hosts question you as to saying, where is the specific evidence? To me, the, the pattern of behavior, the repetition, the, the beyond logic of coincidence is the evidence. I agree with you completely. And, you know, one of the things that we reported in the book, and this uh, would, would include Sant Chatwal, is that there are four members of the Clinton Foundation Board of Trustees mm-hmm. uh, that have either been charged or convicted of international financial crimes. <laughs> there you go. Um, you know, and, and, and again... And who are the four? Exactly. Well, the, the the four would be Sant Chatwal. Mm-hmm. Um, then you have uh, a gentleman named Victor Dadala in in London who was charged by the serious fraud office involving a bribery scandal. Oh. Um, you have uh, Vinod Gupta, who uh, lives in Omaha, Nebraska, who um, was charged uh, and and and. and uh, basically pled out and paid a fine to the SEC mm-hmm. on fraud charges. Those fraud charges included using corporate funds to pay a consulting fee to Bill Clinton. 
that shareholders didn't know about and thought was wrong. Mm. And then there's a current board member, Mr. Boonster, uh, who is facing uh, charges in the Dominican Republic concerning construction contracts that were inflated. So, mm. you know, this is, this is four of what is a pretty small body of people that have run the Clinton Foundation. And, and yet, you know, I don't see the Red Cross or the Salvation Army or a number of other charities having this problem. It seems to be a unique problem to the Clinton Foundation. In all of this, I'm actually admiring Hillary. I don't approve of it. But, you know, the way to find this loophole, does that mean that our system is failing us? Um, or is it the person? Uh, that, that's, that's a very important question to answer. Um, I think, you know, you can only set up so many legal constrictions. Mm. Um, you, you, I think, ultimately hope and, and have to embrace the notion that your leaders will place some limits on their own appetites, uh, in this case, financial appetites. And so I think that, you, you know, we could, we could create and pass a law and it's actually been mentioned in this context. In light of the revelation of the books, members of Congress are saying, we need to introduce a law that says if you're in public office and you have a private uh, foundation, you can't take foreign donations. Mm. Well, that's wonderful, but, you know, they'd find a way around it. The, the, the problem at the end of the day is you have to, at some level, trust that your leaders are going to willing, be willing to say no to money that is presented to them. Um, so I think that in this case, we certainly have to look at reforms to make sure that this is not imitated. Uh, but again, you can create new laws, you can create new regulations. Mm. People who are this hungry and this motivated for money will always find a way around them. Uh, so, you know, I'm not trying to cop out, but I think it's the both. It's a failure in a sense of the institutions because we didn't foresee this, we didn't put restrictions on it, but also it's a failure at the top of the political leadership because um, we're not going to be able to stop everything they do. Right. Just before the show, I Googled you and I looked at, you know, uh, with your name and then the name of the book and then I pressed news and there was something about that you had to pull a few facts back. Yes. It's, it's is that is that significantly changed the theme of the book? I don't think it does, but does it? No, not at all. Um, mm. there, there, were seven, there were seven changes that we made to the book. Right. Four of them were actually changes that we suggested before publication. They just didn't have the time to add them. But right. in one case, one of the quote-unquote changes is actually moving one paragraph up. Uh, it's to contextualize things better. There are a couple of misspellings, and then there are a couple of clarifications. But none, for example, everything that we have discussed here, everything that has been reported about the, from the New York Times on mm. the uranium deal, all of that stands completely uh, and has not been challenged. So now coming back closer to home, um, give me an example of this inconvenient coincidence, as, as your other hosts tell you. Um, of this donation in exchange for facilitation, uh, the TD Bank scenario. What happened there? I mean, that's a large amount of money that they're going to give Bill Clinton to speak, and that's a publicly traded corporation. Am I right? Yes, that's exactly so right. So that's shareholders' uh, money yes. being used. It's, yes, and and really, this is a story uh, uh, to me that mm. that if this were the only example, no, you could charitably 
yeah, you could charitably say, well, maybe this is just coincidence, but right. you see the same pattern. So in this case, Hillary Clinton is put forward as Secretary of State, and really a major issue that she, that's already on her desk before she gets there is the Keystone XL pipeline. Mm-hmm. You know, this, this somewhat controversial pipeline that, that is going to be built through the central United States. As Secretary of State, she has responsibility to review this idea, to see whether it's a good idea for environmental, commercial reasons, international diplomacy with Canada, etc. So she's the point person on this. And TD Bank is interested? Why? Well, so TD Bank is one of the largest shareholders in the Keystone XL pipeline. They have $1.6 billion in equity, and they are on the hook for, uh, I think it's $933 million they have tied up in the deal. So as this is going on, the TD Bank Investment Group, which is the arm of this large bank that um, specifically is invested in the Keystone Pipeline, decides that it wants Bill Clinton to do 10 speeches. Mm -hmm. Now, what's interesting about this is Bill Clinton has never given a paid speech for TD Bank before, uh, but they decide that that he would do 10 speeches for them for about $2 million. He goes ahead and gives those speeches. Three months after the last speech is given, Hillary Clinton gives the green light to the Keystone XL Pipeline. So, you know, you have this pattern of somebody who had never paid him before to speak suddenly signs up with a big contract, Mm -hmm. and this is a shareholder that very much wants Hillary Clinton to sign off on this Keystone Pipeline deal. Now, did you ever speak to TD Bank and ask them why did they want Bill Clinton as opposed to, say, somebody else? I contacted them, and they did not respond. Um, Since the book came out, they issued a statement and basically said that it had nothing to do with the Keystone Pipeline, and and we think think Bill Clinton is a great guy. Um, You know, for me, certainly these denials come out, and and you have to uh, acknowledge them, but for me, it's it's a lot like uh, follow the money in politics in general. You have to look at timing. Now, what happened to the pipeline, by the way? Uh, the pipeline was put on hold by Barack Obama. So the State Department... I guess he's waiting to get speaking fees <laughs> next year, right? Yes, that maybe that's what they're waiting for. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, now, apparently, there's an agreement with the White House and the Clintons that um, the White House has to be notified every time Bill goes out to speak when she was Secretary of State, right? Yes, that they are supposed to notify them and they're supposed to get State Department approval. Okay. Now, um, according to you in your book, there are many donations that haven't been disclosed by Hillary, Um, right? Yes, that's correct. That's correct. You know, Barack Obama, Mm -hmm. um, when he was going to appoint Hillary Clinton, said, you can have this job, but you have to agree to do a certain number of things first. And this became part of a memorandum of understanding. Mm. And one of those was that there would be complete transparency on all donations to the Clinton Foundation. Well, that was wishful Um, thinking, right? Right from the outset. Knowing their history, I mean, you know. um, But here's the thing. Bill and Hillary, I mean, they they have a rules they have rules onto themselves. What was the penalty for not sticking to the agreement? If if well, if was, if, if yeah. Obama says no, you can't go give a speech to TD Bank. Um, what's the penalty if Bill goes well, and gives a speech? It, 
Well, it's a good question. I mean, ostensibly on the speeches, mm. it, it required the approval of the federal government. Uh, in practice, uh, when you look at who actually did the review, it was uh, done by a gentleman named Harold Coe, who was at the State Department under Barack Obama, but he had been a senior appointee under Bill Clinton and knows the Clintons socially. So the person that was supposed to be doing the independent review was actually a you know, Clinton political ally. When it came to the donations to the foundation, mm-hmm. uh, the agreement was that they were going to simply disclose them every year. And um, everybody assumed they were. I mean, this is a very simple, basic requirement. We found actually in Canadian tax records undisclosed donations. Um, in this particular case, it was the chairman of a Russian state-owned uranium company operating out of Canada who had donated more than $2 million, and those donations were never listed by the campaign. I mean, sorry, by the foundation. Um, that subsequently followed up reports with the Wall Street Journal and the New York Times, which have confirmed those facts, and now the Clintons have admitted that there are some 1,100 donors uh, that were never disclosed. I actually think that there are more, and as we discussed earlier, I think when you look at a case like uh, Amar Singh, even some of the donations that they have disclosed, it's questionable whether the person that's listed as making the donation is in fact the one that actually paid the money. I just thought of something. In the developing world, I mean, obviously, especially in, in certain economies that are closed, Um, and with banking regulations these days, you can't really open a Swiss bank account and things like that without you know the banks notifying the the or, the, the country of origin of the, the customer, right? Right. You could use the Clinton Foundation as a temporary bank. Indeed, you could. Absolutely. That's that's. I had not even thought of that. Yeah. That's right. That's right. We do know we do know that some of the donations that have flowed to the Clinton Foundation, actually a fair amount of them, mm. don't actually come in the form of, of cash. They come in the form of stock. Um, so, you know, in, in a way, it, you could also say it, it, it might function in, in a strange way as a brokerage as well. Um, it, it incentivizes the Clintons, of course, to help that company whose stock they have received uh, to see them succeed internationally. Um, and it's unclear how long they hold that stock um, or what they do with the stock and when they convert it to cash. But yes, Look, there's a lot of things related to the Clinton Foundation in this way that are very troubling. It, it's very simple. If you're the foundation and I'm, real, I'm, the, I'm the real Slim Shady, so to speak, if I've yep. made money in a corrupt way, I can't put it in a bank. I can't put it under the mattress. I put it with you. You're the one with the foundation. You hold yeah. it for me. You keep about 10-15% as a cost of doing business. And then in the meantime, I open a foundation and then you invest in my foundation because the Hillary's foundation doesn't actually um, sort of, they don't have um, people that they sort of contribute to, right? Yes. They, they actually don't do a lot of hands-on work. There you they, go. They give Yes, they give money to other to other charitable causes. Which would no, be that's mine. Very interesting. Which very, would be that's mine. very interesting. I hadn't even thought of that. A very interesting idea. Yeah. Um, and it was very interesting. You said that out of every hundred bucks that they have, only ten percent goes to the causes. They they keep ninety percent, ninety bucks. 
Yeah, well, the the ten percent goes to other charitable causes that right. are doing frontline work. The, the the challenge with the Clinton Foundation is figuring out precisely what it is they do. They mm. they don't, you know, you go to the Clinton Foundation website and you will see pictures of Bill and Hillary Clinton with children in Africa and in Asia, yeah. but that's not really what they do. They don't do hands-on work. Mm. They work with other charitable organizations and they function as a sort of a management consultancy, so to speak. Uh, the problem with that is there, there's no real metrics that you can measure. Um, you can't say, you know, we gave this many vaccines to, um, to young children. What they will say is we facilitated um, 10,000 people getting vaccines, right. but they didn't actually do the vaccine. So then the question becomes, what does that actually mean? Well, you can't audit um, that, right? Because then you have to go and audit the, the organization that they are contributing to. Exactly. That's you, exactly right. Can you did you get to see the accounts of the charity? You can go to the uh, New York State Attorney General's mm -hmm. office because they are a charity in New York, and right. you can see something that resembles a budget, and it will list travel and it will list expenses. No, what I'm talking about is um, this is where I'm going with this. Mm -hmm. We both think that this is a treasure chest, right? Yes. So as a result, if you think about it, uh, if it's a treasure chest, you're going to have the level of money relatively on an upward trend because you keep adding to it. If it's an active charity, you're going to have wild fluctuations in your daily balance. Right. Because you've received money, then you've spent it on, on, on the purpose of the charity. But if all you do is keep receiving money and you're not spending out, your average balance tends to rise. Yes. See where I'm going with it? Yes, absolutely. It'd be very interesting. That's to where you would get like a forensic accountant. Mm -hmm. Or I was just wondering if we, we, we had access to sort of their bank balance, so to speak. Because, yeah, um, They'll spend money on their travel and all these expenses and things like that, and, and, and that might look all totally valid. But an active charity throws out what it gets in. Right. right. Because, no, you know, I mean, I've, a I've, disease I've, is not going to wait till tomorrow. You need to get the money out and get the medicines and, and you know. No, I think I think you're exactly right, and I think that's something that 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 you know, if somebody could get access to the books, you would want them to do. Mm. You know, the challenge is is that they they basically release you know a 990 form uh, which you can look at, which has you know this is what their balance is at the time they're making the filing. Mm. Uh, they they have to file a form with the state attorney general in New York, which gives some budgetary information. But in terms of cash flows, it's it's really hard to uh, to know. Um, and, and that's one of the challenges when looking at the, uh, at the Clinton Foundation. And, mm -hmm. you know, on top of all of that, you have uh, organizations like the Better Business Bureau who have dinged them for the fact that they lack certain internal controls. Mm -hmm. uh, and then you have Charity Navigator, the, the uh, charity evaluator, which has, you know, basically said, we, we will not evaluate this charity because of its, quote, unquote, unique business model. So a lot of people are trying to figure out exactly what it does and exactly where the money goes. Um, and nobody's having a lot of success in doing that, and there's not a lot of light being shed by the Clintons on this. In your book, you also said that the State Department never rejected a speech by Bill. Um, my thing is this. 
you can't approve what you didn't know. I mean, if, if they're not going to tell the White House that they're giving a speech and receiving money, the White House can't do anything about it because they never knew about it in the first place. That's right. That's exactly right. I mean, it, it, re- it requires self-reporting, hmm. you know. So one of the... One of the uh, and that's biggest... a very convenient or an inconvenient truth, right? <laughs> exactly. I mean, one of the biggest paydays that, uh, that Bill Clinton received was from a bank in uh, Moscow uh, called Renaissance Capital. It's a Russian bank, and, and, and again... It don't, the names, of... don't the names just automatically suggest... <laughs> Renaissance Capital, Moscow, Bell. <laughs> yeah, I think you're right, and especially when you when you just do some basic research on these entities. I mean, they paid him five hundred thousand dollars for a speech mm. as Hillary was evaluating this nuclear deal that Renaissance Bank was involved in. Now, Bill had only given one other speech in Moscow before. That was for about one hundred and fifty thousand dollars to a British entity called Adam Smith International. But this entity shows up and all of a sudden just says, we want to pay you $500,000, and there doesn't seem to be any hesitation. And the problem is is that Renaissance Capital is a firm that is populated by ex-KGB, ex-FSB security personnel. You've got ex-KGB generals and colonels that are running this investment banking firm that's very tight with Vladimir Putin. We're 40 Uh, minutes into the show. Why am I not surprised? Exactly, and and you know, and it just it it boggles the mind mm. that um, that there's no. So if you look at the correspondence with the State Department on this matter, none of this is brought up to the State Department. You know who these people are, that they're tied to Putin, that it's ex KGB, that they're tied in with this uranium. None of this is brought up. It's just Renaissance Capital in uh, Moscow wants me to give a speech. They're going to pay me five hundred thousand dollars. Two days later, they get a cursor email back that says, "Great, we don't have a problem with this." That was really the review process. And this was was while Hillary was in office. This is why Hillary was in office. And, you know, it's important to note that in this correspondence, which Mm. was obtained through the Freedom of Information Act, that all the correspondence copied on all of it was Cheryl Mills, who who was Hillary Clinton's chief of staff. So think about this. If you're in the legal ethics office at the State Department, you are communicating with the spouse of your ultimate boss, and the chief of staff of your ultimate boss is being copied on every single piece of correspondence. Mm. What do you think you're going to do? <laughs> so it was really a joke of a process. You know, we talked about who can actually indict her and, and who can issue a subpoena. Um, but at the end of the day, if the administration entered into an agreement with her, then shouldn't there be a charge and an investigation into the White House as well? Uh, I think there should be. I mean, I'm frankly shocked that, uh, and, and I mean that genuinely, mm. shocked that the White House has not been more uh, upset about this non-disclosure. Because if you think about it, you know, Barack Obama was Hillary Clinton's boss, and the boss said, I want you for this job, but I'm concerned about this, and you have to promise me that you're going to do this. And what we see in the donations is it didn't take them long. It took them about four or five months, and they started violating that agreement. 
so it's a big slap in the face uh, of the president. And I've just been surprised that there has not been more, uh, uh, you know, interest from the White House in actually getting to the bottom of this. I understand, you know, both the same political party, you know, mm-hmm. this is about Barack Obama's legacy, but it really diminishes the president to be treated in this way and to essentially react as if they don't have a concern about it. I'll tell you who will be really upset. Uh, the administration in Nigeria, because they're going to be saying, and you call us corrupt. <laughs> yes, it's, uh, it, it is very interesting, because if you look at some of the foreign press mm. uh, that has written on this, um, you know, in India and in South America, this is one of the things that they point out, is that, you know, this flow of money to this charity, which seems kind of odd, because why don't, you know, if you're trying to improve things in Colombia, why in Colombia you send your money 10,000 miles away up to New York and then have them send it back down to Colombia. And the answer that they come back to again and again is this issue of, you know, that this is some sort of attempt to influence the Clintons. And so, you know, really, to me, the, the, the sort of sanctimony that, that we can tend to have as Americans about how corrupt other governments are, uh, and that would not happen here, um, there's not as much uh, daylight between uh, those two political cultures as we would think. Um, and I think the Clinton Foundation has moved us further and further in that direction hmm. of accepting this kind of uh, behavior. But, you know, in all fairness... The Clintons are not a flamboyant couple. I mean, he's not into his bling. I don't see him driving a convertible Rolls, and she's not carrying fancy handbags or anything like that. Right. Uh, the house he has in Chappaqua uh, leaves much to be desired. I mean, <clears throat> but what are they using the money for? Or is it just some sort of obsess- obsessive accumulation mentality? Uh, that's a good question. Um, Did you investigate? Uh, you know, I, I, I obviously read a lot about the Clintons. Hmm. This issue has come up, and of course, it's all speculation. Right. Uh, but I think that you know, there's a couple of things. I mean, one of the things that that, that one of Bill Clinton's uh, longtime friends said in general about you know his sort of you know. Um, the moth getting a little close to the flame. You know, he used the analogy and said, it's a little bit like the eight-year-old boy who's stealing the cookies from the cookie jar. Mm. It's not just the cookies. It's the thrill of getting away with it that motivates him. Um, That, I thought, was kind of an interesting analysis. The other thing that you see is that, you know, Bill Clinton made this comment in Canada when he was, uh, after he got done with a highly paid speech, and said, you know, giving these kinds of speeches and, and getting paid for them, it makes me feel like I'm president again. So I, I think that the the part of it is just the prestige of the money. They have a lot of friends that have money, mm. uh, you know, that he spends time with. You know, it was Ron Burkle, and now it's Frank Justra. So I think there's that desire as sort of a, a sense of, of just having the money. Um, but I think it's also the sense that, that they deserve it. I mean, I think part of the psychology at work here is this notion that because they are so convinced of their own moral goodness mm-hmm. they won't entertain they won't entertain the fact uh, or even discuss the fact that they should be on guard for this kind of behavior because uh, they're convinced of their own goodness and that they would never engage in it so it, it, it creates this sort of uh, defense shield around this behavior that that just continues to go on and on very quickly we're coming to the end of the show 
Um, you know, someone running for the highest office of the land needs to have, you know, a, a clean reputation. Not impossible to have. I, 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 I think there are a lot of people out here who, who, who do have a clean reputation. Um, but very quickly, should someone like her run the country? Does she deserve our vote? Uh, well, I, I don't like to tell people how to vote. I think that corruption should be a central issue in what people vote on, and I tell people that on both sides of the aisle. I think that the pattern of behavior that they've engaged in, mm. uh, to me, ranks as corruption. Uh, you've even got uh, you know, Professor Larry Lessig at Harvard Law School, who's mm. a progressive, saying that this pattern of behavior is, is corruption in his mind. And, and I think corruption is a central issue that sometimes is overlooked in voting, but I think is vitally important. Well, then should our, should our votes be based on a sense of ethics and morals? I think they should. I think it should not just be based on uh, political philosophy and where they stand on the issues, mm. but is this a person of integrity and honesty that we want representing the country? Because at some critical point in most presidencies, they're going to have to sort of look the nation in the eye and be honest with them. Okay. And if we don't have confidence, then we're in trouble. Very quickly, if Hillary is elected, what does that reflect on the ethics and morals of our voters? Well, I would like to think that um, as people become more aware of these issues, um, that they're going to be addressed. And, uh, you know, that's, that's all I can say. I don't want to condemn somebody for how they vote, but my hope is that people will vote based on ethics and, and, and morals and uh, will take these issues seriously. Good, sir. And where can we get your book? Uh, it's available, uh, you know, Amazon.com, Barnes & Noble, or, or bookstores everywhere. Peter, thank you so much. Thank you. I appreciate it. I had a great time. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for listening. A special shout-out of thanks to my dream team, William Sanchez and Rick Busey. Your comments and your followers so very welcome on my Twitter account at Vip Jaswal and my Facebook page, The Vip Jaswal Report. I wish you and your loved ones a fabulous evening. And until next Sunday, have a productive and a very happy week ahead.